I went straight home to my father and I said, look, dad, I, um, I want to play golf and, and I don't want to do this right now. And he, he said really, really good thing at the time. I was lucky he said this. He said, look, if you treat it like a job, I'll, I'll help you out. He said, you got five years basically to get back into college if you don't, if you, you know, if it doesn't work out. This is The Tournament Code. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Greg. We know a lot about where you are now, your Twitter popularity, all that kind of stuff. Before we get there, we like to start with every guest at the same spot, which is how did you get into the game of golf? So basically my dad. My dad's a lefty, the same as me, and he played golf. I grew up at a course in uh, New South Wales, just two hours north of Sydney, called Shelley Beach Golf Club. It's about 200 yards from the ocean. And dad took me out when I was about 12 and I just started hitting a seven iron off a tee because we're both left-handed. He just, I just took his seven iron and we went around. I just walked around hitting that and then graduated to a five iron. And then what happened was about, this was sort of, I believe, you know, mid-year. And then by Christmas time, my father bought a set of clubs for Christmas with a view that if I didn't use them, he would. And in basically, once I went back to in Australia, we surfed during the summer. I, you know, swim in the ocean. I didn't really surf, to be honest. But I was in the ocean. And then when summer and school went back in sort of February, is when we go back to school. He didn't see those golf clubs again. I um, I pretty much went to the golf club every day, and uh, very lucky. It's a pretty affordable game in Australia, so very lucky to be able to you know be a member at such a great golf course and and have access to the game so readily. When did you first start feeling like, hey, maybe I got a knack for this. Maybe I could be pretty good at this. So that's, yeah, so that's a trickier one. I would say sometime around 15, 16, I started to really think about, because I went from a handicap, I started on 27 when I was 12, and I lost about 20 shots in the first sort of, uh, you know, 20, 18 months to two years. So I was down to single figures by the time I was sort of 14, 15. And then, you know, it's a journey from sort of that stage until about 17, 18 when you get down to scratch. But I was, the keys were, I really loved it and I really wanted to do it. And then I, I'll tell you a funny story. I was sitting at the dinner table with my parents at about 16, 17 years old. And my parents had a friend come over for dinner. And he said to me, he said, Greg, how good do you want to be at golf? And I looked at him with a dead straight face and said, I want to be the best player in the world. Right. And I think that was an interesting one because A, I was nowhere near, I, I was just a young teenager. I was no, never going to be that good. I think the highest I got was like 53. But it was just interesting. It pointed out the seriousness of what I thought about the game to my parents, I think, which really helped me down the line, which we can probably talk about at some point about how I went about turning pro and things like that. But yeah, it was definitely uh, a, a point there in my 15, 16 year old when I was like, hey, man, I really like this. I really like doing this. Was there a top player in the world at the time that you looked up to that made you say like, hey, I want to I want to be like that? So I would say I, I, I held the shark very highly, you know, I was, I, and not because I was ever going to be like him. It was the, probably because he was the opposite of me. You know, like he was had this aura about him. He was confident. He was flashy. And, I, you know, a lot of things that I'm just frankly not. Um, and so I would say I, I, I saw that and thought, uh, you know, that's. That's the kind of golf I wish I could play. And I just, I love watching him play because you, he was, uh, I was fortunate enough to play with him later in his career. He was just phenomenal at the game, phenomenal striker of the golf ball. And it was always, 
you know, when you get to that level where he's number one player in the world for a number of like, 330 something weeks, it's a, it's a, a incredible to have him come and he carried the game in our country for a long time. So for, for us as young Australians, he was the guy that, that I looked up to. That is very cool. When you were playing at 15, 16 saying, Hey, I want to be the best in the world potentially. And like knowing that that's the goal, were you playing in tournaments at that point? When, when were your first golf tournaments and when did you start pl- actually like getting out there and playing in those? Pretty early. Like we had a, we have a really strong junior program in Australia. There's a, Every state has like an ex-golfer pretty much, or most of our states in Australia have uh, and, and cities have previous good golfers run junior programs. So in, in New South Wales, where I grew up around just north of Sydney, it was the Jack Newton junior program, and Jack was a phenomenal golfer. He's, rest in peace, Jack. He passed away just a little while ago. But he has a still, and I have a junior tournament now. That's the irony. I, I run a junior tournament at the club I grew up at under the Jack Newton umbrella. So... You start pretty early. I think I was 13 and I was playing junior tournaments under his umbrella for, for a while. And, you know, based on handicap stuff and age appropriate stuff, but you start learning, you know, junior golf and junior tournament golf. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun. I really, I really love doing it. And, and, you know, you're winning boxes of balls and I always, you always get excited about what you're going to win and, you know, this kind of stuff. So it was good fun. I know in Australia, the national team, the national amateur team is a big deal. And a couple of the, People that we've talked to from Australia played, went through that program. Is that a similar path that you follow? So I, I did represent Australia several times. I played the Eisenhower and I played in two men teams. And, you know, I won some tournaments under, uh, you know, under their sort of umbrella. They sent us to the French Amateur and I won that because that was it held at the, uh, the Lancome, uh, sorry, the uh, uh, Le Golf National where they held the Ryder Cup a few years ago. We played the Eisenhower not long after that. So I, I got to go play that and win that. And then, I didn't go through what you're, I think you're referring to the Australian Institute of Sport and the Victorian Institute of Sport. That was a little bit sort of, I lived on the other coastline by then. I lived on in Perth and that's how, that's over in Melbourne. And I was just, a that just kind of started and I wasn't looked at for that. And I didn't get offered an opportunity as if I remember to go there, which I'm okay with. It just, it just didn't work out at the time. Understood. But you still had, despite like, that not being an opportunity for you at the time, you had a strong amateur career. I know you won the 93 Australian amateur and I think the 94 French amateur, if I'm not mistaken. Tell us a little bit about those wins and kind of your career going from amateur to professional. Because I know oftentimes, especially probably a little bit back ago in Australia, it looked it looks a little different than what it looks like in the US today. Yeah. So, so what happens in Australia is when you finish your final year, your senior year of high school, you uh you have a grade uh, and depending on what state you're in you have a grades and uh, and and ours it was a score out of 500 and you know essentially if you average 80 you get 400 as your score basically you know so but that then is that is eligible for college for 5 years or university as we call it so i actually went to university for one day i did orientation day i was enrolled and they sat there and this is this was quite interesting they said hey, we need you to do X amount of hours, contact hours, these classes and this and that. And I thought I was trying to do both. I was going to try and do similar to an American model where you play golf and you study as well. And we just don't have sport at our colleges and universities like you guys do. And so we don't have that culture. So you had to kind of do it yourself and separate it. And when I heard that, you know, they want to be there for 20 odd hours for these classes, I went straight home to my father and I said, look, dad, 
I, um, I want to play golf and, and I don't want to do this right now. And he, he said really, really good thing at the time. I was lucky he said this. He said, look, if you treat it like a job, I'll, I'll help you out. He said, you got five years basically to get back into college if you don't, if you, you know, if it doesn't work out. And so I got to work and, and basically what I did was I was like uh, 18 at the time and I would designate Monday was my day off. So Tuesday through Sunday was practice and play. And in Australia, we have a lot of club competitions that run uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. They have either a Stableford or a stroke competition. And so you have a lot of opportunities, continue to work on your game, your handicap, plus the tournaments we play in. I was now in squads to play from represent my state and, and then get it, starting to get noticed, represent my country. So I got to work and I was not the best player even in our state. I was probably not even in the top 10 players, to be honest, at that time when I first started. But we got after it and, uh, and, and I got better and better and better until I won like 18 months later when I was 19. I won the Australian Amateur. And then when you win the Aussie Amateur in those days, I think it's still the same. You can turn pro in Australia on an Australasian tour within two years. And all you have to do is write a letter. You don't have to go to Q school and you'll get some opportunities. So when I was 21, I, I, I sent him a letter and said, off we go. So I turned pro, uh, but I worked hard. I was a sort of 7 a.m. till 5 p.m. to 6 p.m., you know, depending on daylight. Gym three days a week. I'd hit two, 300 balls a day, five, five days a week. I was going to outwork you basically is my goal. And I wasn't going to leave it on the table. I didn't want to look back in years' time and go, oh, I wish I did more work, you know? So that, that's how I approached it. And it, it's uh, apart from the arthritis in my back, it's worked out great, you know? Well, you had some early success as a pro. You turned pro in 1995 and then you won the European Tour Challenge Tour Championship just two years later. So what was it like having that early success? Really, really important. I'll, I'll even go back to. My very first event, because I had no sponsors, I was signed with IMG, the management company, and they just said, just go play, right? Which meant, we'll cover your debt until you owe us about $30,000, and then we're going to ask for our money back. So I went to New Zealand, my very first event, I spent about $3,000 on the week in, in getting there and whatnot, uh, sharing rooms with some friends, and uh, I won $450. That was my first check. I made the cut, finished dead last. The following week, I was actually sleeping on a mattress in the garage game room of a friend's house. We're playing a tournament. It's a pretty decent sized tournament. And I shot 77 the first day, five over, came back 67, 71, 71, and actually finished third. It was a tough week. And I got $18,000. Now, you guys are a bit younger than me. You, you would understand. I went and celebrated. I bought a CD. When we had CDs in those days, like $30. So that, that 18000 I think that was really key to setting up success because I won some smaller tournaments two months later in Australia. And by mid-year, I was ready to rumble. I, I decided to go to Q School in Europe. And I went over and got through two stages over there, got my card on the European tour about 22 years old. And so, you know, I'd also played in Asia. You know, I got my card in Asia. I went to Q School there in my rookie year. So by the time I'm 22, I've, I'm the end of 22, I'm playing on three tours basically. And then I go to back down. I lost my car my first year. I, I pretty much went broke my first year in Europe. And then I got that challenge to a car and finished third out there, which was a great card and had a great year the following year. Finished 27th, I think, on the order of merit in Europe. So rabbiting on a little bit. But yeah, that was, that was a, it was really important. I think a lot of my friends who didn't have success early really struggled for a long, long time. I think it's nice to see that out of the gate to see if you can, you can get it done. One of the things that I think is unique 
being from Australia that we've heard from other Aussie guests is the fact that like for us in the US, we're very we're very US centric. Like going from Florida to California is a long distance and there's a little bit of a cultural difference, but it's not really like that big of a difference. You can do it in a car in a day or two or something. And it's not that big a deal. Whereas uh for you guys, a lot of the opportunities not necessarily in Australia. So you got to go play over on the Asian tour. You got to go play in Europe. And that can to me a lot of times it seems like that's a lot of growing up really fast to do. Whereas for us, we can a lot of times get away with a lot less than that. Tell us a little bit about that time over in Asia, over in Europe, being away from family and what you learned from it. It's, um, it, it, it is a big learning curve. And it's something that I actually say to a lot of young American players, there are options outside of America. And you know, and you guys have spoken about Cooper. You spoke a little bit about the mini tool world down in Florida, and, and there's one in Texas, and they're everywhere, right? The comp- what we look at in Australia is there is no living to be made here in Australia long term. If you want to make good money, you have to travel, and the stepping stone to that is Asia, Japan, onto Europe, and then onto America. And at any point in the, along that journey, you could stay in any one of those places and make a living. They are solid tours, all of them, and so. What, what we sort of, I looked at was like, well, the competition in Asia, I think I can go up there and, and see if I can beat those people. So you look at that as like, if you can't beat these people, there's no point coming to America, right? Because they're better over here. They just are. There's lots more of them. And the competition is very, very good. So I say to a lot of the young Americans, if I can, hey, look, keep your eyes open and keep your ears open to options outside of this country if you're willing to travel. It's not easy, but if you want to play golf for a living, there's a lot of good young players here who don't, who don't think globally. They think very much, I just want to be on the PGA Tour. Well, that's great. We all do, right? So it's very, very tough. And some of your mini tours over here, I would argue, could be stronger than some of the Asian tour products sometimes. But the money is 10 times greater down there. So for us as Australians, we just look at it as you have to travel and you have to get off your horse and, and get going. You have to invest in yourself a little bit. And, and you know, it's... it's it's easier to do when you have, you know, I was lucky I played well and you have, you're a single man. So you're not, you know, haven't got people or things keeping you at home. But yeah, it's, you know, 21 or 22 moving the other side of the world. I moved to London when I was 22, you know, from Australia. It's a long, long haul. Uh, boarded with a family, a lovely family, which I still see just occasionally, you know, once every five or 10 years. And then we stick together as a group too. Like I, you know, we, we tend to the next year, the two years after my first year in Europe, we set up base in London with, I was with Matt Goggin and Steve Allen and, and, you know, some guys that, you know, still don't play much anymore, but we were all trying to play our trade. Jeff Ogilvy came over and, you know, guys trying to play in Europe at the time. And so we, we kind of run through a bit more of a, a, a stepping stone than, than, uh, than a lot of young American players do. And speaking of stepping stones, as you said, you got a uh, European tour status and then in 98 or 99, you got PGA tour status. Tell us through Q school. So tell us a little bit about that. This was the older Q school model that we don't really have around as much anymore. Tell us about that. And then getting on the PGA tour, what like each of those jumps was like from Australia to Asian tour, Asian tour to European and European to PGA tour. Yeah. So uh, Asia, Asia, Europe was very daunting. Um, I, I did not do well. I did not handle it well at all. I think at one point I played like 19 weeks in a row between the main tour and the challenge tour, my rookie year in Europe and missed like 17 cuts and something. I was actually booked to fly home mid-year, my rookie year, and I finished ninth in the Dutch Open, and that got me like 12,000 pounds, which was enough to stay for the rest of the season, and that's about it. So I came home at the end of the year looking and, and had just enough money to sort of go back and, play, and try the Challenge Tour again, 
finished third, won £34,000, finishing third on the money list, which was not even breaking even. I lost money that year. But I, I, I had a great year, 98, like you said. I finished second twice. I shot 61 in the English Open, lost to Lee Westwood on Saturday, shot 11 under, had a little crack at shooting 59 potentially, choked like a dog coming down the stretch. And, uh, and then I came home and I finished third. I was exempt in the final stage of Q School. There's three stages uh, at those days. And I think there still might be four now. I'm not sure. But there was three stages and top 40 got their cards on the PGA Tour. And I was exempt off my performance from the previous year. I'd won a tournament in Australia and they gave three spots to the top 10 in our order of merit in Australia. So I got straight to finals. And so I was in this really lovely spot where I could go to Q School in America, but if I failed, I could just go back to Europe because I just finished 27th on their money list. I was exempt on a major tour no matter what happened. So I came over and I played six rounds. I finished third and had a wonderful week. It was in uh, Quinta, California. I think Mark, Mike Weir won it. I think currently there's only three people out of the 42 players that got their cards. There's only three that still play the game professionally on a regular basis. You know, I looked at the list. There's three or four or five. There's not Brian Gay, myself, Mike Weir. I think Jonathan Kay a little bit, but there's a lot of us. There's a couple of caddies now. There's a lot of us that aren't, that aren't playing much anymore. But it's a big step. And then on the tour, I, I, I got some success early. I kept my card. But it's, um, it's been a bit of a battle here and there. It's a tough tour to play on. It's very, very competitive, and it's only getting harder and harder. What, what changes, since you currently play on the PGA Tour and you've played eight events this year, I'm sh- I think, what changes have you seen since then on the tour? How has the tour changed? Lots of different ways. I would say from the competitive side, it's become very, very bunched up. It's, it feels that way. I don't know if that's factual. That's just what it feels like. The margin for error is much, much smaller now than we're talking in quarter shots and half shots of gaining strokes week in, week out or daily to make a difference. So your week might come down to just a decision that you made or a shot that you hit that went wrong or right. The length has changed. Guys are bigger, faster, stronger. The age has changed. When I was on tour in early 2000s, when I first got going, 99, 2000, there were a lot of guys in my age bracket, 42 to 50. Now there are five. You know, there are not, no, not many. You know, there's Ryan Palmer. I play a few events. Ryan's fully exempt. Brian Gay doesn't play much anymore. But there's not many. Versus my era, it was Kenny Perry, Jim Furyk, Jay Haas. You know, there's a bunch of guys in that age bracket. So that the age has gone down. So it's become much more like tennis now. It'd be really interesting to see the future. I think we might see some young guys who have, yeah, they make a lot of money, but shorter careers in a, in a shorter period of time, but they've made a pot, packet of money. And the tour is, you know, the purses are going through the roof now with the advent of Live Golf. And it's, it's a phenomenal, for a professional golfer, it is phenomenally well done and organized typically, even though we criticize it as players. Uh, you're very well looked after. Uh, that has just got better and better every year in terms of player perks, if you want to call it that. So... There really isn't a lot to complain about, you know. Even though we do complain because we're professional golfers, but it's it's been an interesting journey. It's fun. To, it's been fun to be part of, to be honest. I understand that, and I think that something you said there that's interesting is one. You know, tours changing. Guys are getting younger. Guys are getting stronger a little bit. And one of the things you mentioned earlier on is that you used to be in the gym three days a week. And I think back in the nineties, I was more maybe an anathema to professional golf which is guys were not really working out that much tell us about your 
background in the gym, what it used to look like, what it looks like now, and how that has maybe changed over the yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, funny. So when I was younger, um, I definitely got bigger, and and we never talked about power production or you know we didn't have measuring tools like TrackMan or any quads or anything like you do now. So there really wasn't this need, and our golf and equipment, our golf ball was designed that if you hit it harder, quite often it just spun more. So we did a lot of stuff based around tempo, but I, I did get through a period when I was 19, 20, where I lifted heavy weights and got reasonably strong. Then I went through a period where in my professional career, where it was more about just stretching and, you know, we just range of motion stuff. We were scared to lift weights, I want to say. And it was only in my last uh, uh, sort of five to seven years, I'm, I, I found out I got arthritis in my spine and in five joints and it's just wear and tear. And uh, I got on some, admittedly, some good daily drugs to help with that. But one of the things I wanted to do was slow down the slowdown. I was about 42 years old and I realized, look, if I want to play, I need, I'm only going to get slower and slower and slower. And I found this trainer and he's, his name's Jarrett Phillips and he trains here. And, and I lift now, I lift heavier than I ever have. And I'm stronger than I've ever been. And I hit it. I think I averaged just last week was a bar Nelson. I'm up 10 yards than what I was in average seven years ago. So I'm averaging around 290, 289. So for me to get longer and I did get stronger and faster, I think that's it's just part of the game now. It, it, strength and power has become – it's gone from an asset to a necessity. It has to be part of your skill now. And if I play with anyone now who's young and they hit it next to me, I'm like, oh, boy, you, you need to get on it. Because the only thing I've got going for me is I'm 49, right? So I'm hoping to be one of the longer guys and play against some old dudes pretty soon versus playing against 30 and 20 year olds so you, you need to get after it and get going and even some of those older guys can hit it around pretty decent oh, yeah. i know patrick harrington can still can still pound the ball pretty nice yes. so a lot, lot of lot of work to be done for everybody but as far as uh we talked a little bit about working out etc one thing i was interested about was preparation for tournaments tell us a little bit about how you pre- prepared for tournaments and how that's evolved over time so in you know when I first turned pro and early in my career it was volume and it wasn't really it was quantity not quality but I did do a lot of work and 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 with certain areas of my game it was about maintenance so say with putting which I've been you know perennially pretty good at it was okay I have a list of five or six things I need to keep on top of and that'll be you know to rattle them off quickly to be I want to make sure my eyes are in where I want them I want to make sure my lower half is stable my forearms are square, shoulders are square. Don't care if my lower half is open, closed, wide or narrow, but as long as it's stable and the putter moves in a nice little arc. I'm not, not a big believer. I'm a believer in sort of inside to down the line or inside to arcing around the corner. So when I, I would look at doing drills based around that and it was honestly about just outworking you, right? Uh, and then I would hit a lot of golf balls. Nowadays, it's about quantity equality it's more about shot shaping it's less about my technique it's just getting a good feel might be 20 or 30 balls of okay this is a little bit of what I'm working on right now for contact and uh, face control and then I get into lot draws and fades and highs and lows but most of my stuff now is very much about the quality of the strike I can't change I, I went to I see my coach here John Sinclair in Fort Worth and I went to him about seven years ago and said, look, I don't need to rebuild here. I haven't got time for that, but can you just help me maintain what I have? Because I have a decent move. 
I just need to be able to keep moving and and uh, and and keep moving the ball around because I think Australians have this habit of falling in love with pretty golf swings. If you look at a lot of our young players, they do swing the club quite nicely. Americans fall in love with low scores. And if you look at a lot of Americans sometimes on the range, it's like, what are you working on? You ask them, they're like, I'm just finding a feel. And then they go play, right? And they beat you, right? So somewhere between the two of those is probably the best preparation, you know? So Agreed. When you get to a course and you're on site, you're getting ready to play practice rounds, how do you approach that? First off, if you've never seen the course before. Second off, if you have seen the course. So never seen the course before is very, very tricky. Uh, I would say very – if you only get one look at it, which I know a lot of college kids, that's all you get sometimes. I would – you definitely, if you can, try and find some history. We're lucky we can find pin placements from last year. I would check all wind directions, so look ahead at what the wind is going to be for the week and then also check – ask around any other players, hey, did they move tees up anywhere? Because I hate as a player getting to a tee and going, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know they were going to do that to us or put the pin there or put the tees there. So, And then you just got to look at big miss, little miss, where can I afford to be, where can I not afford to be? So pretty detailed sort of yardage book sort of stuff and spending less time hitting shots, more times looking around because it's not rocket science to figure out, hey, I'm dead over here, but I'm okay over there. So that, that'd that be what I'd do. In, in, a, in a place where I've been before and we know the history and where they put the pins and, and what goes on, it's really just making sure, okay, this rough is the same as last year or this, this bunkers haven't changed and just checking the conditions of the golf course. At my age, honestly, it's more about saving energy because I've got to – uh, is no point me playing 18 holes Tuesday if I'm going to be tired on Saturday or Sunday, you know? So it's more, I don't have to see the whole golf course if I can get a good feel after nine holes. Uh, my favorite is nine holes Monday, nine holes Tuesday. That's my favorite right now. And then a, and a little bit of practice Wednesday and go Thursday. But uh, you just need to have all your ducks in a row when it comes to the knowledge of the golf course of where you want to go and what options you have uh, off tees and things like that. Because if you have any surprises when you get out there, that generally leads to mistakes. Let's talk a little bit about adver- adversity. I know that as we've talked a little bit about your career, and I know that in, I think, 2004 or something, you lost your PGA Tour card. You got it back, and I think you said you've had some back and forth there. Tell us about what it's like going from, hey, I got some status. I've been here for six years to, oh, no, I don't. Now I got to work my way back on and what you've learned in that time. Yeah, so what happens is, and at least for me anyway, you spend the first few years of your career and a lot of your career, to be honest, afraid that you're going to lose your card, right? And there's a lot of fear. I think Azinger said it once. He spent his whole career worried he's going to lose his card, right? And, and I, I, I might have misphrased that, but I believe I read that. But it's, and so when it happens, it's like, I thought the world was going to end, but it didn't end. And you just keep going. And then you get your card back. And that was really important because I, I never did more than, I think, two years in a row on the Corn Ferry Tour. I always seemed to get it back reasonably quickly, regardless of, how I was hitting the golf ball, I managed to get it done and get it in the hole. So what you learn pretty well, and and if you sit down and assess that, you go, oh, I'm good enough to do this, right? I can beat some people. I can get my job back and I can beat some people. And when you learn that and you start to believe that, then that gives you a little more peace and confidence. And then you realize, okay, it ain't the baddest, worst thing in the world if I lose my card. It's not a big deal. But I would say too to people that if you think you're going to go 20, 30-year career and not face some form of adversity and it's just going to go perfectly, 
then you are mistaken. Everyone has their own version. And what you hope, what I hope for players is your version of adversity is, oh, damn it, I finished 70th on the money list instead of 20th. You know, like, you know, like that, that's the top players. That's their version of, oh man, I had a terrible year. And so that's what I hope for someone because losing your card and, and, you know, I was, I had a bunch of stuff in uh, uh, like financial pressure and, you know, uh, newborn babies and, you know, a lot of stuff going on off the golf course that adds to everything that you find out how good you actually are. Speaking of adversity and just fighting through battles, you finally won in 2016 on the PGA Tour. And at the time, you were one of the players with the most starts without a win. And you became the second oldest winner on PGA Tour. So what was it like just finally breaking through? Second oldest? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, Really good. So about a month before that, or two weeks before that, I was flying home from a corn ferry event with my buddy, Matt Goggin, and we were sitting on the plane from, we are coming back from uh, Columbia. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, look, I've got two events on the corn ferry and I've got one PGA Tour event in, at Reno. I gotta, I'm going to go play that. And then I'm just going to focus on the corn ferry. And I went and I, I had my father with me. It was a, you know, he came over and my parents and my dad just came on a boys trip with me so we were staying in the same hotel and anyway i um it was our first week with a new caddy chu dickerson which is bubba dickerson's brother and chu and i we we did great i i played beautifully i played beautifully right up until sunday um and if you know going back i've seen the footage and and to be honest gary woodland probably should have won it in a sense because gary missed some putts coming down the stretch bogey the last with seven iron in his hand i think if you talk to gary he's probably thinks he should have got that one but that that can happen it happens some weeks most weeks there's somebody who probably thinks hey I could have got that done too uh so it was just my turn he really played the last hole really nicely I was thankful for that it uh, wasn't easy uh I, I had a very stern discussion with myself off the 12th tee I hit this steery you know that feeling where you steer the ball and I hit this steery heel fade that nearly went out of bounds in the left rough and the conversation was centered around you know with it was some swearing involved, but it was a very stern sort of, if you don't effing hit the ball hard, I'm going to walk in now. So it was sort of a, just to like get, get it together here and put some passion into it, into moving through the ball because steering it doesn't get it done. I get that. Another thing that is interesting besides you know winning and breaking through like that is also major championships from what we hear from people we've talked to kind of have a different aura around them and you've played in all of them. so. Tell us a little bit about what it's like preparing for that, especially going in your first time. I'm sure it could be intimidating to play in them. Tell us a little bit about what preparation looks like for them, what the environment's like, and what you've learned. It's it, it, and this and this is something that I think a lot of young pros and a lot of pros have to sort of uh, know and understand that um, some people play better when the lights go on, and and I've been. I'm not the best at it, but I do love that stage. It feels it has an energy to it. I do better in typically in, well, I don't know if I do better. That's probably not factually correct. I just enjoy it, right? I, I do love that stage. Now, the hard part is when you first do it is you don't know if this is the first and last or is it the first of many. In some majors, if for me, the Masters is the only one I've, I've done one time and and. When I went there for the first time and the only time in 2001, I believe, I pretty much determined that the week was going to be about soaking up and, and, and 
and enjoying all the experiences. So I did everything that rookies get to do, the function they do on Wednesday night with all the members, a cocktail party, dad caddying for me in the par three, you know, playing practice rounds with everybody. And, you know, it was, a, it was just a great week. Uh, I watched the opening tee shot with Byron Nelson and Sam Snead. Really cool moments. And now that I haven't been back again, I'm glad I did it that way uh, rather than super focused and uh, not playing the par three and not going to watch things and not going to do things because I think I would look back at that and go regret that. Now, on the other ones, the, British, the Open Championship, US Opens, Beth Page Black I played and uh, uh, the one up in Washington, D.C., they are uh, the the Open Championships have been some of my favorite experiences, uh, just because I played St Andrews in fifteen, uh, Troon in sixteen, I believe, and it's it's just such a cool week. You know, I had my parents, my wife's parents, some friends, two sets of friends. I played pretty nicely in a couple of them, so it's it, it's just such got such a nice energy to it, and everybody's buzzing. The whole town's buzzing in St Andrews, and even no matter where you are. The whole city and town is into it. It, it. it has an outside energy to it that's really hard to describe, and it's a lot of fun for a player. You mentioned there's a lot of energy at majors, and you brought your family with you. You, ha- you have a family. Tell us about what it's like you know, traveling, being on the road, and trying to play tournament golf while also having a family. Yeah, so there was a, a friend of mine, an, another pro, who said, you never know how good you are until you've had kids, right? And, and that's part of it is dealing with outside challenges because, you know, like any job, when you go home, you have to be home, all right? You, you, you probably shouldn't bring your work pressure and there's not much they can do for that pressure other than understand it. So um, it, is, it is more challenging and you feel the pull of family. I think all young dads that understand that. I know some buddies of mine have had kids recently um, explaining to them, yeah, it's tough because you, you're traveling or going away by yourself or they're traveling with you. Um, it's a, there's a lot of stuff you're carting around. I think I saw Max Homer's picture going to the PGA this week where he's got six bags on his back kind of thing, you know, he looks like a Sherpa. So, you know, that's a young family life, but there's a lot of positives too. Like the PGA tour do a wonderful job. They spend over a million dollars on daycare. They do, you know, people that they have helping you out. Uh, it really is pretty cool. Uh, so it, it does add, uh, you know, some element of pressure depending on and and but there's always pressure so you just kind of get used to that I think if if you're going to do this long term you just tend to get used to it one of the things that you're known for is your putting you are you said you know I'm pretty I've done pretty good in that stat and that's really an understatement you're one of the top putters of all time in the strokes gained era especially tell us was that something that always was a forte for you and where it kind of came from? Yeah, so uh, I would say I've always had pretty decent hand-to-eye coordination. I've been good at hitting hitting a golf ball or hitting a cricket ball as we do in Australia or things like that. I, I, I played squash too as a kid. I was always decent at hitting hitting sports. Now, the golf club that I mentioned earlier, Shelley Beach Golf Club, it didn't have a driving range. In my, my practice days when I first started, it had – a putting green out the front and uh, and some nets. So we had a lot of time to putt and it had a lot of young junior members who were you know, friends of mine. And we would just play nine holes, chipping comps and putting comps. And we spent a lot of time on that green. I had good tempo. I always had, I've always had a really nice rhythm and tempo to my stroke, a really nice smooth stroke. I didn't really think about technique much when I was a kid. I was just get it in the hole. We just played games. It wasn't until later in my career that I started to understand how and why I could do what I do. 
but I've been I've probably made most of my career around that aspect of the game. You know, you, you have to be able to beat people somewhere, whether it's you know the perfect combination is Tiger with everything, but the the you know there's John Rahm's doing it right now where he's doing everything just wonderfully. But there are some players who either have one area of the game they're really strong at, and I was one of those guys that was strong at that area, chipping and putting. So uh, it was definitely environment helped a lot because of just having that option, that one option. And so, and, and just being around people who like young players who wanted to just get after it and putt and just have fun doing it. It wasn't organized box practice or, you know, like, like we see a lot of young kids do now, it was game practice. Uh, and I think that helped me a lot. Besides putting, you said you were working with John Sinclair and Coop, Cooper's worked with him. I know we've had other friends who have worked with him and he's obviously a smart cat and well-known. Tell us a little bit about who you've been working with, like long term, who your coaches have been, and what you've learned along the way as far as the full swing. Yeah, so I worked with a, a coach in, uh, started out with a guy named Ross Metherall, who's uh, just when I was 19, that's, and he was very much a feel and tempo based coach. He was just like rhythm and balance. So it wasn't a lot of technique stuff. Then I progressed on to Dale Lynch, who coached Aaron Badley. He coached Stephen Allen, Matt Goggin, uh, you know, a bunch of Aussies and, and had uh, Jeff Ogilvy. So he had a bunch of success with those guys and was over. I spent eight years with Lynchy. Learned, learned quite a bit there, things that worked for me and things that didn't work for me, to be fair, because, you know, after eight years with Lynchy, I was really struggling. That was sort of around 2005, you know, five, six, and I wasn't, wasn't hitting the ball as well as I would like. So then I had played with Jason Day in Australian Open when he was 16 and he had Colin Swatton on the bag, his coach, and, and to become his caddy. And, and I liked the way he swung the club. And so I reached out to Colin. We were sort of friends-ish. And he started working with me. And within, I think I had 10 top 10s or eight top 10s on the uh, Corn Ferry Tour the, a year later. Got my card back, kept my card, and you know, I was off on a good track then. And then it, I left Colin. Uh, I learned some so again, some more about what worked for me and what didn't work for me and, and picked up some stuff from him. And, and then I met up with John and, and through that whole process, I, I'd met John because Colin does a lot of his 3D data collection with John Sinclair. He sends Jason there, or he did and when he coached him. And, and so you would go in there and do all the stuff that John does and get all your numbers and everything. So that's how I'd met him. And he's only 20 minutes from my house. And so he knew my game and knew my swing. So I, I said, look, dude, I'm, I'm like, you know, 42 and you see my game. Do you think you can just help me a little bit without messing me up for too long? Because I don't have time for that. So and, and off we wait, off we went. So I, I send him swings uh, randomly, uh, videos and things like that. I see him quickly and easily. And, and look, if, if I'm moving how I need to move, there's not a lot that needs to be said. And that's what I love about him. He's not, um, he's not trying to tell you something that's not true or try, just for change's sake. We stick within the parameters, I think, of what keeps me within a window of success. And he has a lot of information, but that doesn't mean he gives it to you. He, he sticks to, hey, he doesn't need to hear that right now because he's, uh, he's very, very good at what he does. So I've been lucky, man. I've worked with a lot of good coaches and, and, and I've played good with all of them at some point in time and I've learned Probably Dale Lynch was the best for my putting. Swatto was the best for my setup and getting my game back on track. And and now I've got John helping me with. Uh, John's a phenomenal club fitter, like unbelievable at putting a getting a shaft in your hand that works really well. And then it, he's very good at helping me maintain what I've got. 
You mentioned that Dale Lynch was really good for you for putting. Not to belabor the point, tell us a little bit about what you learned from Dale on that on that part. I know you've talked a little bit about the five, six things that you're looking for just as far as like when practicing, but beyond that, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so Lynchy taught me a little bit about the plane and how we needed it to move, like moving on plane, so moving in an arc basically. So once I learned that concept and then the biggest thing he had sent I'm going to butcher this guy's name. There's a coach in, in Australia, and I'll, I'll message it to you guys when I think of his name. And he, it's called Automatic Golf. And he had sent, or Aaron Badley had gone to see this guy. And uh, he talks more about being less precise on the greens, not trying to be so precise, being more generalized and trusting your instincts. So when you're reading putts, you're not trying to hit it at right edge. You're trusting your instincts will know where you're meant to hit it. So you do a lot of stuff where you just look up at the target and it's like you're throwing a ball to a moving person is the way I describe it. So as the person moves, you don't think and compute and then you know figure out where your arm needs to go. You just do it. And so that's how we learned he taught me to putt, which was very much a look at the target and pull the trigger. Uh, it's a very much a less time over the ball thinking, more athletic kind of motion. And so I worked very, very hard. I think Lynchy would agree. I worked very hard on my technique to get my technique to a point where I could start the ball through a very tiny gate, start it online, very high rate. But then I never thought about technique when I played. I was very much a walk in, look, I, I just think tick-tock or one-two. I look from the ball to the target. My look is actually a trigger. I'm not really assessing or looking. I'm just trusting that my instincts are going to put the ball where I want it to go. And, and it's very freeing. And it's a great way to roll the rock, even as a drill. It's, it has a really nice amount of don't care to it. And you do roll the ball really nicely, typically. I know Daniel mentioned earlier, you're pretty popular on Twitter. And I know with your tweets, you're very open and honest and you don't appear to take yourself too seriously. Is this something that you've worked on or have you always been that way? So I would say this, I've always been this way, but I've, I've been scared in the past to do it. But I'm 49 now and I don't care anymore right? <laughs> That's it in a nutshell. When I was younger, I was worried about, I guess, either people clapping. I, I cared too much about what people thought. And I was worried about the energy it took to go back and forth with people online. I was more focused on just career, golf, 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 golf. Now I enjoy interacting with people. I enjoy a bit of banter and I do not take myself that seriously. I only take a couple of things in my life really seriously. Uh, my family, my golf, but even then, I have the ability to self-assess and look at it and go, oh, man, I messed that up because the game's hard. And I think one of the gifts I can give to people sometimes is help them understand that because we find it very, very difficult at a high level. And I think sometimes they think you only see the top five or six guys on TV. You don't see the guy who's shot 78, you know, <laughs> so he's battling. And so you, you sometimes you can point these things out and sort of say, hey, I was really struggling with this or that. But I, I and I and I also think Twitter's Twitter's a bit of a cesspool, so I try and put things out there that uh, make me chuckle. And uh, if it's someone chuckles along, then great. I um, I don't I don't want to put energy out there that's uh, that's in such a negative way. I've kind of changed my thinking on that in the last couple of years. I know you make us laugh, and one of the things that I think you put out on Twitter that's interesting. This will drop a little bit later, so if you're listening to this in the future, go back and check out this tweet. But you tweeted, I think, today about. Uh, one of your shots at the Byron Nelson and one of the mistakes that you made there. Tell us a little bit about that self-assessment and everything that happened in that series of events. Yeah, so what happened was I was playing, I was running 15th going into Saturday last week. So I was having a phenomenal week, Byron Nelson, for an old dude. 
and uh, I'm one under through six holes, and so I'm on track. You've got to shoot sort of three to five at that golf course to maintain some pace um, on where you are, maybe more, but at least three. So uh, I doubled. Um, I had a penalty and hit it in the hazard on seven, so I double bogeyed seven. Now, now I'm one over. So when I get to the ninth hole, I, I'm one over, and I drive it in the rough. So I've already made a mistake. I've driven in the rough, but I've got this lie that is, you know, 235 front edge, into a slight breeze, 210 over a hazard, right, in front of the green. So the lie, if I read it, is 50, probably 30, 70, 30, no chance, uh, 70, no chance, 30. I can get a hybrid over this. Probably can't get on the green, but I can get over the hazard because there's a bunch of, there's nothing much behind it, but there's plenty in front of it, rough. Now, we talk about this. I'm on a podcast, as you guys know, with myself. We host a podcast for Hack It Out, and, and we talk about doubling down on mistakes. And I actually said to myself after this, after I hit it in the hazard, I took the hybrid, hit it in the hazard. I made that decision based on the pressure I felt to make birdie on that hole, right? In my mind, I'd penciled birdie in. I hadn't earned birdie, but because you don't, you don't earn anything. You've got to go get it all the time. You don't get given anything, right? So lay it up, hit it on the green, and then if you make four, great. But at least the five doesn't leave you going. Now I'm two over because I made six, and I'm, I'm really backpedaling. I've, I've got... 10, 11, 12, 13 on that golf course, uh, they're all over 470 or 450 or something, right? So you've got to hit a really solid shot to, to make birdie on those. So it was, it was just doubling down on a mistake I'd already made. And if there's any 50-50s there uh, after you've already made a mistake, I, I made the mistake off the tee and I should eat, eat that, I guess is what I was saying. And I didn't do that. And I said to my caddy the next day, I've been doing this my whole career. Like old career, I'm like not making the right decision. And that's why I haven't, step up beyond some of the stuff that I've done in honest assessment. And so that's something going forward that I'm trying to change and get better at. That's cool that, you know, even, even you host a podcast that talks about this, you talk with Lou Stagner, the shaman of stats about these types of things, you know, you know what you should do and maybe what you shouldn't do. But despite that, it even happens to you playing 20 years on that kind of stage. When you say, Hey, in the future, I'm going to like, try to not do this going forward. What are some of those things that you're, that you're going to like concretely do to say, Hey, like, here's how I can make sure I don't like let the, my impulse get the best of me. Yeah. So real time awareness is really hard and it's, uh, some people are better at it than others. And I'd love to be able to jump in other players heads sometime and, and run through what they're thinking because some of Jim Furyk was the best at it I'd ever seen. I, I, he never tried to do anything. If anything, he was somewhat conservative. He never tried to do anything that was out of his league. Phenomenal at it. Very disciplined. And you have to be that way. I, I think I will probably, I'm going to be talking to my caddies at the start of the week and saying, hey, here's what to look for because we can't afford to make, you know, if I make one mistake like that a week or two, I'm toast. My week's over. You know, I might miss, if that happened on Friday, I'd probably miss a cut. You know, like, so you don't get to make those kind of mistakes in a successful week on the PGA Tour. Because that's not just an execution mistake, which you are going to make. That's a decision and an error. It's a bad choice, right? And you don't get to make both things wrong, you know. So I'll probably talk to my caddy, I'd say, like I did on Sunday last week and say, hey, this is, this is what I want going forward. And you, you have every – I'll give him free reign to sort of say, don't be an idiot. Just hit it there, <laughs> you know, um, because you, it, you tend to want to push, you know, if you see a gap or if you see you, – as a golfer, you tend to want to push. And, and almost as part of you that's like, oh, I wonder if I can do this, you know, like 
And that's fine in a practice round. It is not fine in a tournament sometimes. Golfers are gamblers, I think, at heart. And so when you have that, you're like, yeah, it's 70-30, but mm. I can do it. Mm. And it, it reminds me of something. We talked with Mo Pickens about something like this, and there are two things that remind me of. One, Zach Johnson and his win in 2007. I think he didn't go for it on any of the par fives or maybe only on one. And the reason why is because before the round, before the tournament, he he went through it with Mo, and they went through specific things that they – specific set of circumstances that had to be met before he could go for it on par fives. The ball had to be essentially, uh, Dr. Mo talks about it all, but essentially the ball had to be like on level ground, not in the rough, less than 230, something of that nature. And none of those were ever met. And like that kind of criteria can be helpful. So it's interesting to see you think about that with your caddy. And another thing that Dr. Mo said was, you know, golf, and it echoes something that you said right there, which is golf is full of, plenty of stressful shots just naturally during the round due to execution errors you're going to have like five or six stressful shots or higher stress shots there's no need to let yourself uh have a have more stressful shots because of decision making and so yeah it's cool to see that kind of play itself out from your experience i think uh, this past week i think the other thing is too that i well i i've learned is you never stop learning and actually what happens is later in your career, like I am now, when you start doing either coaching or you start talking about the game a little bit, particularly when you start trying to educate other people, you learn yourself and you remind yourself of, oh, I should be doing that. I'm not doing that anymore. And that's the thing that I'm sort of seeing a lot of now. I, I do a little bit of coaching. We, I talk about it on our podcast a lot, talk about golf and how to get better at it. And there's a lot of times where I'm talking about things and I'm, I have to write them down. And I go, you should be doing that. You've stopped doing that. You know, so you tend to you know, circle back to a lot of things. It's like you have this library of things that help you be successful. You've got to go back and read that book again. You know? So it's, um, it's very challenging. What has kept you so committed to getting better each day so late in your career? And have you seen some of your peers lose that drive? Oh, I think all of us do at some point. I think there was a period, in, if you'd have spoken to me seven to 10 years ago, I'd have been, I was a bit jaded with you know, the amount of time I was away from my family and, and just wasn't playing very well at certain points there prior to winning my first event. I think I was, there was probably periods where I was really questioning what I was going to do with myself here or there. And then now I can see, I can see some uh, opportunity on the Champions Tour. I, I think you start to look at what you want out of the game. Like now when I play on the PGA Tour, I played 10 events last year. I've played eight so far. Maybe I'm going to play more in the summer. I really enjoy them. I don't feel like, because I know, I look, I'm not, I'm probably not going to keep my card or anything. I'm not even trying. Even if I did, I don't think I'd play a four schedule. I'm really enjoying the things I have going off the golf course. I do a little bit of teaching on skillist, on putting, and I do podcasts, and I've got some nice things going on with my family. So I'm starting to enjoy my life now, and I can see a future if I can get going on the Champions Tour and playing against some, some guys out there that I might be able to compete more readily. And so, that carrot dangling motivates me. So I'm, you know, I'm in the gym sort of three to five days a week now, and I'm, I don't practice a lot, but when I do, I do it well. Uh, I try to do it well, and uh, and I'm trying, I'm, I'm keen to sort of build and get get out there and see if I like playing golf on the Champions Tour. I got to get there first, you know, it's a tough place to get onto. So, uh, but I'm going to chase that and see how we go. And I like. I like that thing dangling in front of me, like just chasing it. I like that, you know, like even if it doesn't work out, I like the idea that, you know, I've I've got something on the horizon that uh, I've got to go find and do. We're excited for those steps for you. And 
hoping the best for you in that. Look forward to following you there. I know we're running up on time, so I have one. I have two more questions. One question for our last question. And you mentioned that you teach on skillist, you teach putting. I'm sure that maybe not a lot of people know that are familiar with skills. Tell us, tell people a little bit about what putting lessons they could expect there, like what they would expect from you if they found you on skills. Because I think a lot of people sometimes can be skeptical of yeah. using. A remote coach, and especially even with putting, they can be skeptical. Yeah, look, and, and like anything online, it's a, it's, it has assets and it has drawbacks. Uh, obviously, in person would be perfect, but there's also some things online that are really cool in that you have video feedback and breakdowns that you keep and they're yours. And I would say to people too, I, I have the option to send you, if you message me through Skillist, I can send you sample lessons, completed lessons. And it's not just send me videos and then I break them down and you're done. There's quite a bit of back and forth. I want to make sure I actually helped you and you're actually on the right path. I don't want to leave you sort of guessing as to if this is right or wrong. And I want to make sure you, it's usually some set of videos to me, like two or three from different angles. And then I put you on a path and then you send videos back to make sure you're on that path. And then, and then you can reach out anytime and I just check in with me and see if you, if it's working. Uh, depending on how good or bad you are. Look, I have some people that I've looked at their stroke and said, look, I don't see anything wrong here. And I talked to them, I have spoken to them through Zoom or on the phone and just talked about preparation and some attitude stuff and, and see if I can help them that way. So it's all about just adding to your knowledge base. And, and if I can do that, then great. So you can learn a little bit about how you move and why you move that way. Um, I'm not a one-dimensional kind of guy. I'm, there's plenty of different ways to move the putter and stand and get it done that are functional. So, and sometimes it can be for some people just validation. Just someone told them, "Hey, you're doing it right. That's fine." You know. So it's um, it's just another avenue. And Skillist is an app you can download and it's free. And and you, there's plenty of Sean Foley's on there. There's plenty of coaches on there you can access in different ways. So there's a lot of good information to be had. It's and it's usually at a cheaper price point than maybe in personal instruction. So because of that. Yeah, I agree. I I haven't I haven't worked with you, but I worked with uh, Jason Nickel through Skillist, and I really I really think it's a great platform. And I wish it had been around when I was a kid because it's a help it's a helpful addition to learning. Um, so moving to our last question, last question we ask every guest is the same, which is if you could go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that one thing be? Uh, I would say uh, particularly junior through uh turning pro and and young pro i wish i was more confident in what i was doing or understood more about what made me so good i think i went down some pathways with my golf swing that i probably didn't need to go down you know for example that year in 98 i finished 27th or 25th on the order of merit in europe finished second twice i won the australian open i finished third at q school i mean i had a phenomenal year and then i changed coaches you know, I went and saw Dale Lynch at the end, like two months after the Australian Open. Now, to credit to Dale, he said, why are you here, right? And I, I wanted to build I, – I got down a pathway of trying to build a pretty swing, and really I had a good golf swing. And it was clear and evident. I was playing good golf. And, and uh, I think I went, I went down a wrong track there for a little while, and it, and it took me a while to get back on track. So just have a confidence in and learning about why you're successful and how you're successful. Um, and Australians too, we're not – as confident as Americans are, we're, we're a little more, um, uh, I guess, uh, we don't want to get too big for our boots. And I don't think that's healthy 
I'd rather it's a lot easier to ramp confidence down than it is to ramp it up, and the game will kind of ramp it down for you sometimes. So it's better to to sort of believe that you can do it rather than uh, trying to fight to get that belief. So I, I think there were periods in my career where I could have done a lot better had I had that, and and that's probably something I, w- I look back on with a, a, a hedge of re- a little bit of regret. Absolutely. Well, hopefully people can learn from you everything you've said today and especially that point and carry that with them where can they find you on social media where can they find you on skillist and then also if they're interested i know you're involved with maximum chances tell us a little bit about all that yeah sure so uh, social media is just greg chalmers pga on twitter i think i'm the same on uh, instagram i don't post a lot of uh most of my stuff is goofy i don't post a lot of uh, content that helps people do stuff unless you go to skillist and just search my name and then i'll I'll try and help you out. But there's plenty of people giving information away that if you want to get onto that about putting and things like that. But and it's also a part time gig for me. It's not not my full time job. So I'm not I'm not living and dying by that. But Maximum Chances is a uh maximumchances.org is a charity named after my son Max. Thanks for giving the opportunity to mention it. Uh he's on the autism spectrum, has he's nineteen years old, going to A and M right now, just finished his freshman year doing really well and we paid for a lot of therapies as a young man for him so we started it seven years ago maximum chances pays for therapies for children in the dallas metroplex uh, speech therapy behavioral therapy and and very and doctor visits and things like that for families that can't afford it uh for their young kiddos so it's been really rewarding we've raised about 1.3 million it's small very effective we don't we don't spend a lot of you, you give me a dollar a lot of it gets back to where it needs to go we're over 90 percent back to back into the community because we don't spend a lot of money on organizing big events and things like that. Uh, so it's a very effective small footprint, but uh, really proud of it. And uh, if anyone, you know, I know you have a lot, people have a lot of options when it comes to charity. So if, uh, if you're feeling like you, you want to add us to the list, we'd really appreciate it. And we'll look after your money. I promise you. Awesome. Well, be sure to give Greg a follow on social media, find him on skills and check out maximum chances. If that's something that you're into, I know that we will. And then, Beyond that, if you're looking for us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at The Tournament Code and on Twitter at Tournament Code. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave us a rating. That helps us get our message out to more people. And if you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to join us and look forward to diving in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf. 